Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much to the worship team for leading us in such beautiful worship this morning, remembering the power and goodness of our Lord. I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday of the year, actually, because we get food and we don't have to go shopping for anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm, giving gifts is not my spiritual gift, unfortunately. I find it stressful. So, love Thanksgiving. And you may have come to church today with the reasonable expectation that the sermon is going to be something about the need to give thanks to God. And if so, I am very sorry to disappoint you because actually it's not about that at all. Um, today is actually the last sermon in our series in Luke for a little while. Uh, we have some other topics that we're going to tackle in the next couple of months, but I promise you, uh, eventually we, will gonna, we are going to come back to Luke. So after today, put a bookmark in Luke 8, and we'll start back up again there in the new year. Last week, uh, Brian spoke on the topic of Jesus calming the storm and how we can rest just like how Jesus was sleeping. Sorry, I hear this is making many loud noises. That's, oh, it's because it's bumping my cheek. Brian and I must have different shaped faces because this thing never fits me right. Anyways, I hope that'll be okay. Um, so he spoke on the topic of Jesus calming the storm and how we can rest in the midst of life's storms. We don't have to worry. We can, in essence, be asleep the way Jesus was in the boat. We can just sit back and rest because we know God's got us. Today, we're going to look at the story of a very violent and demon-possessed man that Jesus healed. And this is, I know, a weird topic for Thanksgiving. But if you bear with me, I think it does eventually tie in a little bit. And there are some very important lessons that we need to learn from this story. It's full of mysteries, which is one of the reasons why I was so excited to preach on it. Because every time I read this, I have so many questions. And I think you will too. So if you turn with me in either your own Bible or the Pew Bible or the Bible app on your phone to Luke 8, verse 26. That's where we'll be starting, and I believe we'll have it up on the screen for you as well. So Luke 8, 26. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, what are we going to make of a story like this? First of all, there's that whole question of demon possession. And I will admit, I have never seen or experienced that as far as I know. And that is a very confusing topic. But I think we have to assume demon possession does happen. It's listed many times in the Gospels of how Jesus healed the demon-possessed and also gave his disciples the authority to drive out demons. But what did this poor guy do to be possessed by so many demons? And what is their purpose with him? Why do they think Jesus has come there to torture them? And what is this abyss that they're so afraid of? And then when they're sent into the pigs, and the pigs all rush down into the lake and die, then, what, then where do they go? So I have a lot of questions. And I, I honestly don't have satisfactory answers for any of those questions. And if I were to try to answer those questions today, we would go down a rabbit trail of speculation, and we would miss the main point of this passage. I think none of those questions are answered because we don't actually need to know those answers in order to get the point. It's frustrating, but sometimes when we're reading scripture, we have to accept some mysteries. And we need to focus on what we are told rather than what we aren't told. So what we are told is this. Jesus Jesus was in complete control of this encounter with a legion of demons. We're told that because of the demons, this man was violent, he was dangerous, he had supernatural strength, he could break his iron chains off and escape from any of his guards. And actually, if you read Mark's version of the story, the same story is in Mark chapter 5, it adds these details that no one was even strong enough to subdue this man, and that he was really a tortured soul. He would cry out at night among the tombs, and he would cut himself with stones, The demons had made it impossible for him to live a normal life in his community. They had separated him from everyone that loved him. And I think if he were alive today, he would probably be in a padded room in a psychiatric hospital and possibly sedated. He was a danger to himself, and he was a danger to anyone else that he came in contact with. He was mentally and emotionally and physically and spiritually out of control. So you can't help but feel bad for him. I think Jesus did. In fact, there's some evidence to support the idea that maybe Jesus had the disciples cross over to the other side of the lake, which he commands them to do um, earlier on in Luke 8, just to get to this guy and heal him. Can you imagine the reputation this guy must have had in that region? Everybody knew he was there. Everybody stayed away from those tombs. So I can imagine that Jesus, in his compassion, maybe had heard about him and was led to seek him out and heal him. I don't know. But I do know that if you or I met this man, we would be nervous, wouldn't we? We would maybe be terrified. We certainly wouldn't want to go out of our way to run into him. 
But not only was Jesus not afraid in the slightest, the demons were actually afraid of him and what he might do to them. And this doesn't mean these were not some strong demons. They were. Mark tells us the first thing Jesus says to the man is, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And normally, based on other stories of Jesus' exorcisms, that would have been enough for the demons to leave. But these ones don't. They talk back. And they say, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. So then Jesus asks the man his name. But it's the demons who reply. And they're showing that they are in complete control of this man, not only his actions, but his mind and his words as well. This is pretty scary stuff. And they continue to talk back, and they're begging Jesus and pleading with him not to send them into this abyss, wherever that is, but to let them go in these pigs instead. And and Jesus actually agrees. He has compassion on the demons. So that's some pretty amazing compassion. And so what happens to this man in the moment that the demons leave him We aren't actually told, but we are told that all of a sudden the pigs go crazy and race down the hill to their deaths in the lake. And in Mark's version, it tells us there were 2,000 pigs. So these were some strong and powerful demons. And you know how we talk about the horsepower of a car engine or a truck engine? For example, I looked this up, the 2019 Ford Super Duty F20 F20, F250, sorry, I know nothing about trucks, but for those of you who know what I'm talking about, Ford Super Duty F250 has 450 horsepower. Okay, well, these demons had 2,000 pig power. They were strong. They were scary. And they were completely under Jesus' control. So what does that tell us about Jesus then? It tells us not only does Jesus have complete power and authority over nature. We saw that in last week's story, how he could just tell the wind and the waves to be quiet, and they obeyed. But he also has complete power and authority over the supernatural realm. There's nothing in all creation that can refuse to obey our Lord Jesus. We sang earlier, what a powerful name it is. And we really mean that. These demons can appeal to Jesus for mercy. They can try to make a deal like whiny children, but they can't disobey him. They know that his word is law and his power is absolute. And he is the benevolent dictator, we might say, of our universe. Our government may be a democracy, which we are very thankful for, but the supernatural realm is not. We have a good God who is in control of all things. And Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all of it, without any exception. So this is the main point of the passage, the absolute authority and power of Jesus. And if the disciples didn't believe he was the son of God before now, they should be getting suspicious. The only proper response to this incredible event is for them to fall down and worship and to submit to his authority. But that isn't what happens. This is what blows me away about this story. I mean, if you can get past the the craziness of demon possession and accept all of that, then what blows me away is the response of the people who are watching. There's, There's no end to our human idiocy and rebellion, really. 
you know, they, what did these witnesses do? Verse 37, it says, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. That is so tragic. You know, like, they responded to this incredible display of Jesus' power and love with fear and rejection. So basically they're saying, we would rather deal with our own problems by ourselves than ask the one with all the power in the universe to help us. We, we prefer the devil we know to the loving God that we don't know. They would rather have their calm, happy pigs that can earn them some money than have people healed and freed from the grip of Satan. Their priorities are just more backwards than I can even express to you. And now, ironically, the demon-possessed man is the only one with his head on straight because he wants to go with Jesus. He knows Jesus is the only one who can save him and protect him. He knows better than anyone that there are evil forces at work in the world, and he would feel much better sticking to Jesus' side at all times. But Jesus gives him a mission instead, to go and tell everyone what happened to him and to praise God publicly. Jesus didn't often tell people to do that. A lot of the time, at least when he was in uh, Jewish regions, and especially near Jerusalem, he told people to be quiet because it wasn't time yet for him to be arrested and crucified. But this was a Gentile region. It was far away. It was across the lake. And he leaves this man there to testify to what God had done in his life. I think that just shows Jesus' compassion once again. He had mercy on these dummies by leaving them a witness who would testify to them that God did love them and that God had power and authority. So on the one hand, I find this story really encouraging. It's encouraging because Jesus' love and power are still available to us today. He's the same God yesterday and today and forever. So we often think that we, maybe we don't think this consciously, but we kind of assume that we have problems that are beyond Jesus' ability to solve. So we might have health problems or relational problems or uh, work issues or emotional, spiritual issues, and we think, well, you know, Jesus can't really help me with that. I, I guess I just have to live with it. Do you have a problem like that in your life? Well, ask yourself this. Is your problem equal to being possessed by a legion of demons? No, right? It's not. So Jesus can most certainly handle your problem, whatever it is. He has absolute authority and power over everything. He can help you. And the question is, do you ask him? Do you believe that he can help you? Are you willing to ask him to stay? Or do you prefer the devil that you know? Many times I think we actually prefer the status quo because we don't like change. We don't like change, even if the status quo is really bad sometimes. And this is the, the second truth that the passage reveals, is that not only does Jesus have absolute authority, but letting Jesus into our lives will disrupt our lives. That's why the story is both encouraging and a little bit intimidating, because none of us likes the change. We don't like to have our life disrupted and thrown into chaos, but that's part of what Jesus does. Not because he likes to make us uncomfortable, but because that's what it takes to bring us healing, 
and to make us more like him. It's going to take some disruption. And if we want to see more of Jesus' power at work in our lives, then we have to be prepared for surprises. His power is not static. It doesn't do what we expect. We might be healed, or we might lose our whole herd of pigs. But either way, it's going to be for a good reason. It's going to be out of love. It'll either be good for us or good for someone else. And so we can trust him, and we can trust his power, even though it's overwhelming, and it's, it's going to constantly move us in the direction of greater holiness and greater love and greater unity with God and with other believers. I want to come back to that idea of that disrup- divine disruption in our lives in a minute. But first I need to clarify one thing. When I talk about Jesus' power, I could also very well say the Holy Spirit. When Jesus, who is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and became incarnate as a human being, he accepted some limitations to his divine power in order to be fully human. And so everything that he was able to do on earth, including his miracles, he did because of the power that the Holy Spirit gave him. If you don't believe me, look back in the earlier chapters of Luke, how many times it mentions the Spirit upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends upon him at his baptism, and then it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. In Luke 4.14, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Luke 5.17, the power of the Lord was with him to heal the sick. It was the power of God. It was the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. And so Jesus wasn't able to do miracles simply because he was the Son of God, because he had voluntarily given up that omnipotence, voluntarily. No one took it from him. He could have it back whenever he wanted, but he gave up that omnipotence, and he relied on the Spirit, and he was perfectly filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was his power. And this is the reason I'm so... This is so important, I think, to understand, because as followers of Jesus, we have been given the same Holy Spirit, the same power within us. And if that doesn't blow your mind a little bit and seem unbelievable, then you're not getting it yet. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon all the believers at Pentecost. You can read about that in the book of Acts, where the Spirit came down upon the disciples and they spoke in other languages. And ever since then... Every person who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior receives the Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit that Jesus had. And so that includes all of us. All of you. We have the same power within us that Jesus had. And the Apostle Paul describes this so beautifully in his prayer for the Ephesians I'm going to get the guys to put it up on screen for you here. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. You can look at it in your Bibles as well if you like. I pray, Paul is praying for this church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, And, here it is, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So what, sa- what Paul is saying here in his prayer about God's power is that the power of Christ for us who believe is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And it now fills all of us, Jesus' body, the church. So the Holy Spirit confers on us Jesus' authority and power over evil. Isn't that unbelievably awesome? What an incredible privilege and responsibility we've been given that God would share his own Holy Spirit with us. We don't deserve this. It's a gift. If we're going to be thankful today, let's be thankful for this as well, the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, as I said earlier, I have not met a demon-possessed person. Maybe some of you have. But does that mean they don't exist because I've never met one? No. I have never seen a blue whale either. But I believe they exist because others have seen them and have described them. And so to me, it's the same thing. But what gives me comfort as far as demons are concerned is that if I ever do meet someone who is demon-possessed, I won't have to be afraid. I probably will be a little bit, but I won't have to be because I have the Holy Spirit within me, which is the same spirit that empowered Jesus. And if there's one thing the Bible tells us about demons is they cannot stand up to Jesus, and therefore they can't stand up to his body, the church. This is why James 4 verse 7 promises us if we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he will flee from us. He has to. Jesus is within us. So in a way, it's a little bit similar to my fear of spiders. People have tried to comfort me by saying, they're more scared of you than you are of them. Right? Have you heard this before? And that's probably true because they may look scary, but I can actually squash them with one foot if I want to. So I'm not really in any danger. Now, if we are the body of Christ on earth, indwelt by the Spirit of God, then we have his power over evil. And demons know it. Are they going to cower before us the way they did before Jesus? Probably not. Because they're going to try and scare us in every possible way because they're counting on the fact that we don't know the power we have within us. This past week, Pastor Jason had a nightmare about demon possession, and I was in it. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't know if I was the one who was possessed, or if it was him or someone else. He doesn't remember the details. But you know what that is? It's a scare tactic. I'm not listening to that. I have the power of the Holy Spirit within me. And the Bible says we need to embrace that power. It says, don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a leader in one of the churches. He said, for this reason, talking about Timothy's sincere faith that he had had since childhood, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. 
So if we come back to that idea of a, a divine disruption that Jesus causes in our life, just imagine the disruption to our church if every person here was filled to capacity with the Spirit's power and love and self-discipline. What would we see? I can imagine we would see incredible answers to prayer. We would see people who are passionate for prayer, who can't stay away from a a prayer meeting, because people would be being healed. People would be coming to faith in Christ. People would be asking to be baptized. There would be new spiritual gifts being given and discovered and used. And I want that kind of revival for our church. Do you? Do you want to see that? And yet, even for me, as a pastor, it's a little bit scary, right? Because it would mean giving up control in a lot of ways. It would mean we will be surprised by what God is going to do. We wouldn't know what to expect, maybe, on a Sunday morning. It wouldn't be quite as comfortable. We certainly wouldn't know everybody, because new people would be coming. We would have to change some of our habits. We would have to change some of our ways of doing ministry. We might have to change our building to accommodate these changes. And there would probably be some conflict. There would probably be some spiritual attack. There would probably be some bad theology that would crop up and would need correcting. But it would be worth it. It would be worth it because we would be seeing people coming to faith in Christ and having their lives transformed by him. And so if you think that kind of revival is unlikely or impossible, let me remind you of what Jesus said in John 14. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And Jesus is with our Father now. And he has sent his Spirit among us so that we can do even greater works than he did. Is your mind blown yet? Mine is blown. So let's not be like these witnesses that we read about earlier, who saw a man freed from his demons and they decided they were afraid rather than excited and full of worship and wanting more. So this is is the bottom line. If you write anything down, these are the two things I hope that you're going to take away from this sermon today. The first is that you can have confidence in the face of any evil powers because Jesus has all authority and power And that power, the Holy Spirit, lives in you if you have trusted in him for salvation. And the second thing is that you can embrace Jesus' disruption in your life because you know it will be for the best. It will be either for your good or someone else's good. And I know we often prefer to keep God in our box. Sunday mornings and a few minutes of reading scripture every day, and that's enough for us. But if we're really going to be his disciples then we've got to expect and embrace some disruptions to our regular life and routines. He doesn't want just a little piece of our life. He wants it all. And it will be wonderful, but it won't be comfortable. So I encourage you with these two scriptures. Remember this, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. I've often read that and thought of quenching as like squashing. But actually, to quench your thirst means to be satisfied and not be thirsty anymore, right? So we're not to be satisfied with our current experience of the Holy Spirit. We are to continually thirst for more and be filled. And then Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 says, be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. 
Be filled, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there you go. It ties in with Thanksgiving. We're giving thanks to the Father because when we're filled with the Spirit, we are going to overflow with gratitude to God. We are going to be able to see things we've never seen before. We are going to see with the eyes of our hearts. They'll be enlightened, as Paul said, to be able to see what is really going on in our world. What is really going on in my life? What is the Spirit of God doing? Where is he at work? And to be able to see those things is going to cause us to give thanks and to praise God more and more. We're going to overflow with gratitude. So would you please pray with me that uh, we would have more of him? Lord Jesus, we want to recognize once again the power and authority that you have and that you have given us the Holy Spirit within us. Lord, too often we do quench that spirit. We do become satisfied and think that this is good enough. But Lord, would you remind us today that we want to see your power in our lives. We want you to fill us. We want you to work through us so that more people will come to know you as their Savior. We want to see lives transformed. God, would you fill this church and fill all of us here, God. Help us to be grateful. Lord, help us not to be afraid, but to have that spirit of power and love and self-discipline. God, we give you thanks for the incredible gift of the Spirit that you have given to us. And Lord, help us. Help us to be continually mindful of what you are doing and to be working alongside you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.